you for singing happy birthday to me. There's a point where you just stop counting them. And I think I'm getting close to that day. Take your Bibles this morning and turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter number 16. Before we get into the, what is a man? By the way, isn't that a great picture? <clears throat> That's what every kid thinks a man is. Grunting and groaning and screaming with a stick in his hand. But you can take that off for a second, Melody. Go back to a blank screen if you don't mind or find one. We have three quick things that we would like to give out this morning as we did on Mother's Day. And so we want to ask the question this morning. The father who is here with the oldest child. Now, we had a lot of debates. Do we have the oldest child that's here present in the room, here present in the building, uh, those that are here on earth or those that are in glory? And so we're just going to stick with that father who has the oldest child. So uh, if you want to define it however you want to, uh, you can. But let's start with if you have a child here that's older or not here, a child that is older than 30. Would you stand to your feet? A child that is older than 30 as a dad. All right. It's going to sit down quick here because I'm going to make some big jumps, right? If you are a father who has, by the way, all the wives are telling their husbands, yes, yes, she's that old. Yes, he's that old. I I get how that works, right? All right. The next question is, or or the escalation is, older than 45, stay standing. If If your child is older than 45, stay standing. All right. All of the daughters that are here like, Dad, sit down. I've been 29 for a long time. All right. Older than 55. Stay standing. Oh, Neil. Brian, is it you or is it Alan? It's Alan. All right. Brian's like, is there, are there any other? Neil, come on down. You win. If I'm Bob Barker, you're the contestant. Congratulations, brother. Well done. The, ne- the, next question, the next question is for the father with the youngest child. So if your child is younger, we're going to make this one quick because I think I know who it is. Uh, if your child is younger than five, stand to your feet. If you have a child that is younger than five, can somebody go get Nick? He's on security. I know who's going to win. The rest of you can basically just sit down at this point. Now, we, are, we did determine this in the office. It's not a baby in the womb. That is a baby. It is your child. It is live. Uh, but uh, we, we want to make sure it's in your arms, not in mama's belly still. All right? Uh, under, if you have a child under, or under the age of two, remain standing. Under the age of two. Well, it's going to be a competition, but I know how old Laney is, and I know how old Jocelyn is. If your baby is six months or younger, stay standing. If your baby is six weeks or younger, all right, Nick, you're the winner. Come on. We didn't trigger this for you, but happy Father's Day, man. Congratulations. Now, this next one, I think, is the best one of all. Father with the most daughters. Now, why would we give a gift card to Lowe's to the father with the most daughters? They cost a lot of money, man. Like, you want to know why I think God gave Jessica and I three boys? It's because I was a pastor and we didn't have any money. And so God said, well, you're not going to be able to afford anything for those girls. So he just gave us three boys. But if you have 
One or more daughters, stand up. That way we can suffer with all of you, right? One or more daughters, stand up, all right? Now here we're going to go. Two or more daughters, remain standing, all right? That gets half the crowd out. I have to do some serious praying for some of these men. Three or more daughters, remain standing. Oh, it's a competition. It's on now, all right? Four or more daughters, remain standing. Oh, Brother Jim, Congratulations. I think that's it. Yeah, that's it. Come on. How many weddings have you had to pray for, brother? Or or pay for, not pray for. They're all married, married, so all of them. All right. Well, now if I can have all the fathers stand, we'll pray. Then we'll jump into our reading here in 1 Corinthians 16. So fathers on Father's Day, if you'll stand with me. And then we'll jump into the preaching of the Word of God this morning. It is certainly a commendable thing... In this day and age, men, that you are faithful fathers. We live in a society and we live in a culture, friends, that doesn't agree with what you're trying to do. So let's pray. Father, I thank you for these men who are standing. The men who are here are not perfect men. Far from it. But they are men who are pursuing you. They want to know you. They want to live a life in such a fashion as to please you. Make them into those men. This morning, Lord, as we will look into the Word of God and as we come to the Scriptures, I pray that you would help us to understand the role of a man, the person of a man, is quickly diminishing in our modern country, in our once Christian nation. And so these men who are standing... Young and old are being tasked to live against culture, but according to the Word of God. I pray that they always will. Bless them, I pray. We thank you for them. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Thank you. Paul, writing to the Corinthians, <clears throat> says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 16 and in verse 13. I think I put in your notes verse 3. It's been a pretty busy weekend, so forgive me. I put the wrong number there, but it's verse number 13. The Bible says in verse number 13 of 1 Corinthians 16, Watch ye, stand fast in the faith, quit you like men, be strong. This morning we're going to look at the idea of behaving or acting as a man. We're going to look at What is a man? We did this on Mother's Day. On Mother's Day, we had a nice flowery picture. We had a pretty little thing that we would put up on there because women are made of sugar and spice and everything nice, but boys are made of snakes and snails and puppy dog tails. At least they used to teach that in school. Now I don't know what they teach. By the way, the more smart our culture gets by identifying everybody by subcultures and subsets, the less intelligent they become. I saw this week that Johns Hopkins University actually has now labeled the human race as men and non-men. It's good to be a man, I guess. I don't know. That wasn't even the patriarchy that did that, by the way. They labeled us in a medical journal because they don't know how to explain all of these horrible relationships that are developing, all of these weird sciences that are coming out. They don't know how to label us, so they've just labeled us men and non-men. Oh, but they're enlightened, aren't they? And we Christians who follow the Bible are ignorant. Well, I must start this morning with a perfect story. Right? On Father's Day, 
you got to tell the perfect story. Some of you are smiling because I've told this story to you before, but it's a perfect story to be true. The story goes that there was a perfect man who met a perfect woman. And after a perfect courtship, they had a perfect wedding. Their life together was, of course, perfect. One snowy, stormy Christmas Eve, this perfect couple was driving along a winding road when they noticed someone on the roadside in distress. Being the perfect couple, they stopped to help. There stood Santa with a huge bundle of toys. Not wanting to disappoint any children on that eve of Christmas, the perfect couple loaded Santa and his toys into their vehicle. Soon they were driving along delivering the toys. Unfortunately, the conditions were deteriorating and the perfect couple, along with Santa, had an accident. Only one of them survived the accident. Who do you think it was? Santa, really? (laughs) Maybe I should preach a different message this morning. The answer, of course, as to who survived is the perfect woman. She's the only one that really existed in the first place. Everyone knows there is no Santa Claus and there is no such thing as a perfect man. Now, it is Father's Day and with liberty on my birthday, I will give you what the proper man's response to that is. So if there is no perfect man and there is no Santa Claus, then the perfect woman must have been driving, which explains why there was an accident in the first place. (laughs) Are you sure you wanted to sing happy birthday to me? On Mother's Day, we highlighted what a woman is. We noted on that day that a woman was a created being as an equal sex with unique significance in God's design. That a woman is a corrupted being who sinned in her ignorance, which led to her insolence against God's design. We noted that the woman is a chosen being in her salvation and in the station that God has given to her in this life. Finally, we noted on that Sunday that a woman is a cherished being, both as a mate or a spouse to her husband... And as a mother. So this morning I want to complete the picture and look at what a man is. We will come back to our text here in 1 Corinthians 16 and in verse 13. In our final point this morning. But it serves as a proper entry point into discussing the biblically expected life that a man should live. It is uniquely different than what God has designed for a woman to live. So Paul here does not tell a carnal church in Corinth to behave themselves like women. He says to them, you in that church, in that leadership, act like, quit like, behave like men. He says to those men to watch, to stand, and be in behavior as a man in the life that they must live. So the first biblical biblical truth about a man then is that he is the foremost being. I'm going to be real careful on some of the things this morning. I picked the little kid with the caveman so that you might understand the Bible is against culture. The Bible routinely runs counter to culture. Man specifically, Adam, the first man, was the chief of God's creation. When God created Adam, he declared everything was good. 
The Bible says this in Genesis 2 and verse 8, And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And man became a living soul. God made Adam in his triune image. He formed man of the material substance, that is the dust of the ground. He breathed in the breath of life. By the way, that phrasing in the Septuagint is the very same phrasing for biblical inspiration in 2 Timothy 3 and 2 Peter chapter 1. And man, it says, became a living soul. Jesus famously asked, what would a man give in exchange for his soul? Man is and was in that original creation, body, that is matter or substance, spirit, God's breathing, and a living soul. When Adam died, his soul died within him, for his body and his spirit remained functional. Adam could walk still, Adam could talk still, he could rationally communicate and think, but he was no longer one with the life of the living God. For God had said in the day that ye eat thereof, ye shall surely die. So as the foremost being in Genesis 2 and verse 8, then man was first created to lead. It is inescapable that God's design is that men be leaders. Men, if you are the follower in your home this morning, you're on the wrong path. I know that in the world that we live, that sometimes is very unsettling to say, I am not asking you to drag your wife out by the hair and teach her a lesson. That is anti-biblical. I'm asking you by the word of God to lead your home in godliness. Adam was to lead in understanding, he was to lead in the applying, and he was to lead in the obeying of God's word. Adam, not Eve, had the distinction of dressing and keeping the perfection that God had created. Genesis 2 and verse 15, the Bible continues, And the Lord God took the man and put him into the garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it. For in the day that thou eatest thereof thou shalt surely die. God did not say this to Eve. God said this to Adam. The responsibility to lead and make life choices within that first home were Adam's to make. This expectation for the man was to dress or prepare the garden and to keep, protect the garden. That was the expectation, by the way, also for Israel when they were entering the promised land. Here's what God says to Moses for him to teach to their children or for the fathers of that nation to teach to their children. In Deuteronomy 6 and verse 1, now these are the commandments, the statutes, the judgments which the Lord your God commanded to teach. You, to teach you, excuse me, that you might do them in the land whither you go to possess it that thou mightest fear the Lord thy God to keep all his statutes and his commandments, which I command thee, thou and thy son and thy son's son, all the days of thy life. Notice the noting here. It's not just your kids and your kids. It is a generational passing of father to son. And that thy days may be prolonged. Hear therefore, O Israel, and observe to do it, that it may be well with thee, and that thou, might in, thou may increase mightily, as the Lord God of thy fathers hath promised thee, in the land that floweth with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the Shema is what we're reading now. The Lord our God is one Lord, and thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, 
with all thy soul and with all thy might. And these words which I command thee this day shall be in thine heart, and thou shalt teach them diligently now unto thy children. He said it is the dad's responsibility. It is the man's job to learn who God is. If you don't know who God is, you can't lead your family anywhere except for into trouble. Thou shalt teach them diligently unto thy children, and shalt talk of them when thou sittest in thine house, and when thou walkest by the way, when thou liest down, when thou risest up. And thou shalt bind them for a sign upon thine hand, and they shall be as frontless between thine eyes. And thou shalt write them upon the post of thy house and on thy gates. This, my friends, is God's expectation for Israel, and it's his expectation for the man of God today. Men are to diligently lead their homes in loving and obeying God. There is a diligence in holding to God's word. There's a necessary effort in it. When the fall actually happens, it doesn't change change God's intention for the man to lead. Here's what God said to Adam immediately after the fall. And in the curse, he says unto the woman in Genesis 3 and verse 16... I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception. In sorrow thou shalt bring forth children. Notice, he tells her, and thy desire shall be to thy husband. And he shall what? Lead, rule over thee. Man, I am in big trouble. Remember, I picked a little scrawny kid with a stick that looked like a caveman. We live in an age where this is not common practice. It's not commonly accepted as right and proper. The very next verse, he goes on and talks to Adam and says this. And unto Adam, he said, because thou hast hearkened unto the voice of thy wife. Notice that statement right there. What is God saying to Adam? His failure was, you let her lead. Oof. Men, the responsibility, again, is not upon us to be in action cavemen but rather in attitude and action, biblical men lead in righteousness. And as eaten of the tree of which I commanded thee, saying, Thou shalt not eat of it, cursed is the ground for thy sake. In sorrow shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life. Thorns also and thistles shall it bring forth to thee, and thou shalt eat in the, er- the herb of the field. In the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread, till thou return unto the ground, for out of it wast thou taken, for dust thou art, and unto dust shalt Thou return. Until the day you die, men, you have the responsibility of working and leading in your home. Let's get even more controversial. A very interesting and instructive statement is given by the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Now, within the context... He's talking to the carnal church who is coming in and he's eventually going to get to in the very same chapter that this is written where we find the ordinance of the Lord's Supper that we practice today in the church. But within the context of that, he's saying, you're doing everything about worship wrong. He's saying, listen, when you come into the house of God, when you come into the church, it is the men who are to assume the leadership. I don't care what Rick Warren says. I don't know if you follow that controversy this week. We aren't a Southern Baptist church. We're really just an autonomous Baptist church. We're out here on our own. But I'm thankful for those within that particular convention of Baptists who determined and decided that no, at least 86% of them, no, we do not believe that a woman can fulfill the role of a pastor. That is not me being chauvinistic. That is me being biblically accurate. Here's what Paul says about that in this carnal and corrupt church. 
He says in verse number two, Now I praise you, brethren, that you remember me in all things and keep the ordinances as I delivered them unto you. But I would have you know that the head of every man is Christ and the head of the woman is the man. And the head of Christ is God or God the Father. After addressing head coverings and what you should wear and not wear within the church, or at least particularly in their time, he goes on to say this in verse number 7, a very interesting passage. He says, For the man is not of the woman. In other words, the man was created independent. When I say he is the foremost being, this is what I'm talking about. In God's design, in God's order, in God's creating, in God's authorship, this is how he designed it. Man must be the foremost. And every time he's not, the society, the culture, the home, or the church falls apart. For the man is not of the woman, but the woman of the man. Neither was the man created... Oof. For the woman, in verse number 8, but the woman for the man. Eve's purpose in being created was, be, was, was because without her, Adam was unable to fulfill his potential. We read that in Genesis chapter 2. Adam, therefore, in this passage in 1 Corinthians, is the glory of God, and Eve is the glory of Adam. Stop and think about this before we get too upset. All the great things that Adam are only come to their fullest potential and understanding due to Eve's presence and purpose. That's why in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul says, if a man burn within himself, let him marry. Let him have his full potential that God's designed him for. Let they be husband and wife together and accomplish great things in this world. God, my friend, has always been glorious, whether Adam had ever been created or not. But in creating Adam, Paul is telling us here, we can see the full measure of just how glorious God is. God, as a sovereign God, does not mind you and your free will rejecting him. He still has a plan, even if you reject him. In other words, by creating man and giving us a free will, the total glory of who God is can be seen. By the way, it can also be understand. This pulpit cannot understand just how glorious God is. It's an inanimate. But we are animated. And thus we are created, the Bible says, Paul says, for God's glory as men. And for the woman, she too is created for God's glory. But within the marriage, if she submitted herself and surrendered herself to a husband, then her first glory is in her husband. Now, let me back myself out of this so that we don't get too heated and hot to this, this morning. John Phillips, a great commentator, said this, God is a God of order, an order that reaches back into his own nature. He insists on order in the universe. Science is predicated on the fact that his universe is based on order. This order extends into human affairs, to government, to the home, to the church. In terms of human life, the woman has a head. He is commenting on this passage in 1 Corinthians 11. The man. The man has a head. Christ, who by virtue of the fact that he is God absolutely and eternally takes priority and preeminence over the headship vested in the man. The man in answer, is answerable then for his actions, ultimately and inescapably to Christ and Christ alone. By the same token, the woman is answerable to the man. 
This does not imply male superiority, nor does it imply female inferiority. It simply states it to be a fact in the order of God, in the home and in the church and in society. Their respective roles are God-ordained, and the, as are the state of affairs. No amount, he concludes, of argument is going to change God's design. All attempts to defy it, he notes can only lead to the breakdown in chaos within a culture. Paul's point is that even in the New Testament dispensation, we are to live our lives with men leading in homes, churches, and society. I'm going to ask a very serious question here. It may sound like it's a joke, but it's not. Is our society better since we began the processing of making men more effeminate? I would ask that question even beyond our broader four-walled audience here in the congregation. Is our society better? You say, well, there's some things we do better. Sure, there are some things that we've learned and grown through. But is our culture better for making man effeminate? No. Has social order improved since there have been a shirking of leadership by men and the assumption of leadership by women? Again, the answer is categorically no. We are a society in the present age that seemingly has left logic, reason, and objectivity to become a society of feelings, emotional chaos, and subjectivism. You say, are you blaming women for that? No, I'm blaming men for that. Now, we can amen and agree in here. I'm simply stating, when we go outside the four walls of this church, if we live, act, and talk like the rest of the world, then we are doing them a disservice. You say, Pastor, you seem pretty emphatic on that. I can tell you in the 15 years that I have pastored this church, my singular mission is to grow men in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. I'm very happy for all, and we have many godly ladies in this church, wonderful ladies, some ladies that probably know the Bible even better than I do in this church. But my objective as a pastor is to grow men into the image of Jesus Christ so that they can grow their families into a family of Jesus Christ so that we can affect a culture for Jesus Christ. Now that we all feel a little more cavemanish with our testosterone flowing, let me tie together the rest of what a man is from the Bible so that we see how society can be restored. As the foremost being, was, man was created to lead, but next we find he was created to love. And I don't mean to be the object of another's love. He himself was created to have the capacity to love. The first thing God said was not good in all of the Bible was that man was alone. God noticed that man was created with the need to affect love on or towards others. In Genesis 2 and verse 18, the Bible says, And the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him and help meet for him. Man is not just created for love, but created to love. In other words, men, don't hear me saying this morning, you're right. I'm going to go home and tell my wife, I'm created, I need love. I'm saying you are created to show love. There are four Greek words for love used in the Bible. Those four words divide into three levels of love that we find broadly throughout the scriptures. Sacrificial love, social love, and selfish love. 
Sacrificial love means that we die to these other appetites that we have. My desires, my passions, my wants die to God, die for my wife and die for my children. Those are the three instances where we know agape love applies and where we should engage in it. I did hear that a speaker once at a woman's club was lecturing on marriage and asked the audience, how many want to mother your husbands? One member, far in the back row, raised her hand. Shocked, the lecturer asked, you want to mother your husband? Mother? She replied, I thought you said smother. (laughs) Now that woman really believed in sacrificial love. I mean, if we lead in our homes in the right way, that would never be said. Social love means that we have a bond, a brotherhood. The Bible uses words instead of agape like storge and phileo. These are words where we have a bond within the brotherhood of the church or within the community. This applies to our extended family, our eternal family within the house and fellowship of faith, and our earthly fellow man. I'm supposed to be kindly affectioned with brotherly love to my fellow man. The ever-increasing age in which we live, however, falls into the third category of the four words, which is selfish love. It's eros, where we get our word erotic. It's selfish love. I just want this for myself. I'm consuming it upon my own lusts, the Bible would say. Oh, the man would have stayed perfect, right? As the foremost being of God's creation, there is no limit to what the depths of knowing God could have been had Adam stayed in that state. But we know, number two, that he became a failed being. Remember in our Mother's Day message, the created being became corrupted. The foremost being failed. It was his fault. Paul tells Timothy this in 1 Timothy 2 in verse 13, For Adam was first formed, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived was in the transgression. We noted on Mother's Day that Eve was in the transgression ignorantly, is what we said. But that ignorance in the curse led to insolence. Today I would have you understand that Adam, Adam did not sin ignorantly. Adam sinned intentionally of his free will. Romans 5 and verse 12, a verse we all should know very well, says this, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. There's two aspects that we must understand in this failed nature, men, that we must live in. And that is, first, that there is willful sin. Adam chose to sin. By one man sin entered into the world. Adam chose to sin knowing that death would follow. Adam knew that choosing to eat of the fruit was a willful disobedience to God's word. And it was a departure from the perfection that God had given him. Adam knew this. Eve did not. And yet Adam Adam sinned. He exercised his will rather than obey God's will. Thus man is responsible for sin and not a woman. Bring that home for just a moment to us this morning. Many times we get mad at Adam. I was listening to a a video this week of Ray Comfort who uh, runs Living Waters Ministry and does a lot of great evangelistic work. And he was being interviewed and he said this, Ray Comfort, he goes, the first thing I'm going to do in heaven is I'm going to punch Adam right in the mouth. I don't know if I necessarily disagree with Ray. 
But stop and think about that for just a moment. Adam sinned intentionally, yes, and plunged our whole race into sin. The Bible teaches us that. But when we who name the name of Jesus Christ, we who know what death looks like, we who know what sin cost us, we who know what it cost Christ in redeeming us, when we sin, we are not just doing it intentionally, trying to figure out what will happen. We know what happens when we sin. Yet men, we engage in willful sin all the time. As sure as the day is, we just keep on sinning. Well, I know that Jesus died for my sins. But you know what? This sin's not going to kill me. Should we continue in sin that grace may abound? What did Paul say in Romans 6? God forbid. And yet we engage still in that willful sin. The second aspect of the failed being is the work of sin, letter B. The end of chapter 5 and verse 12 says, For that all have sinned. It wasn't just Adam who sinned. You sin as well. And the outworking of that sin is death. Laziness, license, and lust are the work of sin in men today since the time of the garden. These have corrupted our roles, they have corrupted our responsibilities, and they've corrupted our relationships between both men and women. Women today are asked and tasked with bearing, I believe, a double curse. They are often required to work a job and take care of the home life. There is an abuse of God's order in that, men, if it's a requirement. Her role of nurturing helpmeet is harder because we make them work. The designed role of a nurturer is God given to the woman. You can't nurture, ladies, if you're never there with your children, if you're occupied with a career realize I'm getting deeper into the cave now. The word of God is true, and I'll always hide in that. In the typical American home, the wife, mother, works 40 hours a week, runs errands for another 12, shuttles to sports and music practices for another 8 to 10, arrives at home most nights between 7 and 8 o'clock, leaving less than two hours for her to nurture and know her children. Then they crash into bed around midnight, finishing their work around the house. Is it any wonder, then, that the president of this nation says that they are no longer your kids, but that they are our kids? Men, we have let them down by asking them to bear a double curse. We've ceded control to the government in raising our children. And many times that's to outsiders who don't agree with our faith, to no names who we don't know anything about, and in some instances, perverts. Why? Because sin has worked its way into our thinking of everyday life, men either through laziness or our lust to have more things, the bigger house, the shinier toy, the bigger car. We have allowed license to take over where liberty once existed. The man is ordered by God to work in Genesis 3 and verse 17. So men, stop living in laziness without working. Dig a ditch, clean a toilet, shovel manure if you have to. But work. A hard day's work is a reward for the man who wants to obey God. Now, you may be saying, Pastor, you sit in the office where it's air conditioned. I know, but I'm telling you, friend, I'm in at the office at 745. I leave the office around 230, 45, and nearly every night we spend two or three hours with a family from this church because that's my work. I'm called to do that. If men would begin to look at their work not as something that they're tasked to do, but as God ordained, oh, we'd have different people. 
Laziness married to license is a deadly combination. License has allowed us to rack up unpayable financial debts and emotional spiritual deficiencies that weigh us down and wear us out as a country, certainly as a culture. Paul told the Galatians that they can use liberty that God has given to each of us, but they cannot use that liberty as an occasion or an opportunity to live in their flesh. We seemingly believe as a nation that unpayable debt is acceptable. We think this nationally or publicly because men, we think this personally. In our home, I'm getting ready to, I've been looking around and we're going to have to replace my car. It is insane how much cars cost. And so I told Jessica, I said, we're just going to have to limp her along. I mean, she's running fine, but we're just going to have to limp her along. We're going to drive a car that's 30 years old by the time we're done. Because I will not take on unnecessary, unwanted, and undue debts. Where she and I have to sit around and wring our fingers. Well, Pastor, uh, the guy next door has a car that is brand new. It's $99,000. Well, good for him. But if you're a Christian man, live differently. Sin works in us to all sorts of terrible conclusions, whether it's financial, moral, political, or even positional. Sin working in us draws us to laziness. It draws us to license and licentiousness and ultimately to the lusts of our flesh being consumed upon us. Man is the foremost being, but I note that man is also a failed being. Thankfully, number three, we are also a favored being. Remember in the ladies' sermon, I told you it was always my desire or hope as a pastor that somewhere somebody smart would put Mother's Day and Father's Day together, put Father's Day first so I could beat up the husbands, and then on Mother's Day say really nice things to the wives. That's always been my hope. It's never worked out that way. We said that the woman was chosen in her salvation and in her station where God has placed her in her home. Man is a favored being for sure. We've received grace in the person of Jesus Christ. Philippians 2 and verse 8 tells us, And being found in fashion as a man. That word fashion is the Greek word schema, or in the very schematic approach. He had every facet that we have as a man. He humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Men, and of course women too, are a favored race. Notice I said we are one race. How are we favored? Letter A, through Christ's redemption. We are favored through Christ's redemption. Men, you can be saved this morning if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior. Hebrews chapter 2, beginning in verse 9, there's a wonderful telling of Christ's humanity, or how He came to earth and what He came to earth to do. The Bible says, but we see Jesus, who is made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that He, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. For it became Him, for whom are all things, and by whom are all things, and bringing many sons unto glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect or complete through what? Suffering, that is death for you. For both he that sanctifieth and they who are sanctified are all of one, for which cause he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying... I will declare thy name unto my brethren. In the midst of the church will I sing praise unto thee. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children which God hath given me. This is Jesus singing here, by the way. For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death. That is, the old devil. 
the writer tells us. And to deliver them who, through fear of death, were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For verily or truly he took not on him the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham. Wherefore, in all things, it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself hath suffered being tempted, he is able to succor them that are tempted. Now, that word succor is an old word. I understand it. But we must understand there are two favors that the Son of Man provides us this morning in redemption. That is payment and provision. Payment and power. We've been redeemed from the price of sin and from the power of sin in Jesus Christ. We understand first, men, the, the first statement of payment. But notice in chapter eight or 2 and verse 18 again, he says, For in that he himself hath suffered being tempted, he is able to succor. That word succor means to run to the aid of another. Jesus literally will run to the aid of anyone who is being tempted. That's what that verse says. Friends, that's a great redemption. From sin's penalty, but also from sin's power. There's not a single man that's in this room today that says, I have an addiction, I have a problem, I have a sin that I cannot overcome. For when you are tempted, you have one Jesus Christ who will run to your aid. Unfortunately, instead of fleeing youthful lust and drawing near to God, we rush towards the youthful lust and hide from God, just like Adam did in the garden. We are favored beings through Christ's redemption, but also through Christ's rewards. I encourage you, at some point this week, read John chapter 5, specifically beginning in verse 22 and following. You see that Christ, our Savior, wants to reward us. He will judge us. Here's what God, or Jesus himself says in verse 22. For the Father judgeth no man. Isn't that interesting? We often have a picture of God in our mind of the austere God, angry in heaven, ready to throw the lightning bolts down upon us. But Jesus said that's not the case at all. The Father judgeth no man, but hath committed all judgment unto whom? The Son, Him. Friends, understand that. The Father has made Jesus the judge of this world. Christ's redemptive work established his rewarding words that we will receive then. Jesus will be the one seated upon that Bema seat, the ancient seat of the Greek Olympics that is the picture that Paul uses for what the believers one day will stand before with God. By the way, the Bema seat in the Greek Olympics was not to tell them they were wrong. It was to tell them that, yes, you followed the rules and, yes, you've accomplished the race. Here is your laurel. Here is your crown. Here is your wreath. Paul uses the very imagery in Romans 14 and verse 10. But why dost thou judge thy brother? He says in Romans 14 and verse 10. Why dost thou set it not, thy brother? Why, why do you dismiss them? And then he goes on to say, For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. That phrase, judgment seat, is bema. For it is written, As I live, saith the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then every one of us shall give account of himself to whom? God. Men, understand that this morning. Every decision you make, every choice you follow... Every direction you lead your family, you will answer not just for yourself, but for the outflow of those consequences. Boy, it'll change what you listen to in the car, what you watch on the television, and how you talk at home. 
It's high time we favored beings wake up to the fact that grace comes with expectations in us. The judgment seat of Christ is a time when we will be called on to report, to render an account of what Jesus did for us. Here's what Paul said to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 3 and verse 11. For other foundation can no man lay than that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if any man build upon this foundation, in other words, your salvation is set, but now you start building upon that salvation. Gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble. Every man's work shall be made manifest. It's going to be made obvious. For the day shall declare it. What day? The day of God, the day of Jesus Christ. Because it shall be revealed by fire, and the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. By the way, the picture of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego going through the fiery furnace is the exact picture I have of what the Bema seat will be like. Jesus will be there with me, but there will be a consuming fire, and all of my life activities will be on display. And everything that was wasteful and wanton towards God, it will be burned up, and I will say, Ah, man, that was a waste. I'll suffer loss. He goes on to say that in this very passage. But that which is true, it will walk through me or through the fire with me, and I will then on the other side see it refined, and I will give it back to him. The fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. If a man's work abide which he hath built thereon, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved, yet so as by fire. The foremost being became a failed being. Yet man is a favored being in Christ. Thus, finally this morning, we must be a faithful being. Oh, how faithful is our God. How wonderful and how kind and how gracious He is to us. And so I ask you this morning as we bring the message to a close, how faithful are we to Him in the task that He's called us to, men? There is nothing more noble than a Christian man living in accordance to the Word of God. Notice I use a very interesting word. There's nothing more noble. How do I know it has nobility to it? Have you ever seen a very faithful Christian man who has walked with God, not in his own self-piety, but in humility, has walked with God, and you look at that man and you say, there's something about him. Some of us, even in this morning, are thinking back to our own fathers. I'm glad mine's not in here because I probably wouldn't keep a straight face. I could remember morning after morning watching my father at the end of the couch. My mother used to have to switch the ends couch cushions because my dad would sit in the same spot for a half hour to 45 minutes to read his Bible and to pray every single morning. And if I would get up to go run or if I would get up early to do homework that I had forgotten to do the night before, I'd always see my father in the living room sitting in that spot. Yet my dad never really held a title of position anywhere in a church. Yes, he was a deacon, but a deacon is a servant. The message is not to puff him up. I'm simply saying we all know men who are noble. How else do I know it's a noble calling? Because there's nothing more hated by the devil by the world, and by our flesh. Are there still men who want to take the mantle and live it? Are there men, even in our midst, that want to risk being called patriarchal, risk being labeled narrow-minded? To be faithful, a man must be faithful first in his holiness. He must be separated. 
You cannot look like, live like, or act like the world and expect to be a faithful man of God. That's our text this morning. You say, oh, are you getting ready to fire up and preach another whole message? I am not. I give you just three words. The holiness that we have is found right here in chapter 16 and verse 13. Watch ye, stand fast in the faith, be strong. The behavior is to be like a man. So what does that faithful man look like? He watches his holiness in his social life. What do you do in your social time? Do you know what my boys do every time I kiss Jessica in our house? Oh, man! Luke's lying to me this morning. He's sitting over there by mom going... Luke also has like five girlfriends here in the church, so... Maybe we have to keep an eye on him. But why do I kiss my wife in front of my boys? On purpose. Because I want them to know in my, holy li- or in my holiness and in my life that I'm living that there's only one gal for me. I want them to know. You say, well, it's just an outward thing. No, listen, it's a very intense thing. I don't kiss her grossly in front of them. But I make sure they know I love her. We went on a date, light, date night last night. I always want my kids to know who my favorite is. In my social life, if I'm going to watch my holiness, then I'm also going to be careful with my friends. Not just my favorite, not just my wife, but with who my friends are. You know, when I was not living for the Lord, I had a host of friends that were not healthy for me. Do you know when I started getting my life right with God around 2002, 2003? I had to get rid of a lot of friendships. I had to watch my holiness. The second thing he tells us is stand fast. That is in the faith. So you have to stand fast not in your social life, but in your spiritual life. We watch our social life. We make sure our relationships are right. But we stand fast. We're firm in our spiritual walk with God. The third thing we find in that verse is that we're to be strong. That is in our secular life. That means be active out in the world. Can I tell you something? I'm convinced in our church there's a lot of good godly families with good fathers who their sons ultimately will go into the ministry someday. But may I also tell you, I think there's good godly fathers who are not in the ministry who probably teach their sons so much more than this pastor ever will about who God is and why God is. Your ministry is far more important than who's standing behind this desk preaching to your boys, to your girls. And if men can wake up to that, that they are in charge, they are responsible. Oh, what a church we would have. Oh, what dynamism, what power, dunamis is the Bible word, we would have to affect our culture. Finally, this morning, a faithful being in his holiness, and I get to Father's Day in the home. Two notes and we're done. I put them there for you. We're to dwell with our wives. 1 Peter 3 and verse 7, I give it to every married couple or every engaged couple. It's part of the processing and the program that I go through with them to lead them to the day that they say I do. 
It says this, likewise, husbands, dwell. That word dwell that you read there is the word abide. It means to settle down with, to stay with, to get to know. Just be at ease with her. Dwell with them according to what? Knowledge. In that process of dwelling or abiding, giving honor unto the wife as unto the weaker or more precious and valuable. We talked about that on Mother's Day. And as being heirs together of the grace of life or the salvation that you've received, that your prayers be not hindered. The word dwell means to abide, to take time with. How much time, men, have you spent with your wife alone this week? Well, may we sleep in the same bed, so eight hours a night? (laughs) That is not a good conversation starter. It usually leads to this, roll over, put a pillow under you. That's all the things Jessica says to me. If you're a young couple without kids, it's likely that that number is much higher. Jessica and I on purpose try to spend 30 minutes a day at the minimum just sitting and talking about the day and life without television on, without kids around, and without any distractions. I cannot know my wife without spending time with her. I want my spiritual life to thrive, don't you men? And what Peter says in this passage is, it won't if you will not dwell with her. The second note that I put there is develop our children. We're going to talk about this next week when we look at what is a child. But, of course, the Bible tells us some principles as fathers for our children. Ephesians 6 and verse 4, And ye fathers, provoke not your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. The concept in the early part of that verse is don't live a duplicitous life that provokes your children to disdain what you are and what you believe. In other words, don't say one thing and do another. The book of Proverbs in chapter 4. Men, if you don't get anything else from the message today on home life, go read Proverbs 4 every day for the next seven days. The man is as the child is trained. In other words, you want your sons and daughters to grow up to be godly? Practice Proverbs 4. Here's just the first four verses. Hear ye children the instruction of a father and attend to no understanding. For I give you good doctrine. Oh, dads, you better know doctrine. You better know the truth. You want your kids to be set free, right? It's only the truth that makes them free. Forsake ye not my law, for I was my father's son. Be relational to them. Tender and only beloved in the sight of my mother. He taught me also and said unto me, Let thine heart retain or hold on to my words. Keep my commandments and live. Can you say that to your kids? Keep what the pastor said. He had a lot to say this morning. He went long. And live. No, keep my commandments and live. In closing this morning, we have found that a man is the foremost being, a failed being, a favored being, and ought to be, of all things, a faithful being. If we marry that to what we looked at on Mother's Day, you begin to see God's order for the home. The man is the foremost being, while the woman is the created being of equal importance and significance, completing him. The man is a failed being, while the woman became a corrupted being because he lacked the leadership that he should have shown. The man is a favored being, just like the woman is a chosen being. What high value God puts on both of us. The man is to be a faithful being, 
to the woman who is his cherished being. Oh, I'm thankful for the fathers we have in this church. I'm thankful for the men that we have in this church. As I've often said from this pulpit and in person with many of the men of this place, God puts as the target perfection, but what he expects from us in this life is pursuit. Maturity, growing closer to that standard. Some dads say, well, I haven't been perfect. Well, where you failed, go ask for forgiveness. And go back into the pursuit of holiness, the pursuit of who God is, what he's made you to be. Oh, that this would be a Father's Day of change for all of us. Father, I thank you.